Hello and welcome to the latest EnvCast episode. EnvCast is a Society for the Environment podcast, bringing you environmental professionals in conversation each month. My name is Phil Underwood. I'm the Engagement Manager here at the Society for the Environment. Our podcast is designed to provide insights into the lives of registered environmental professionals, featuring experts from across a wide range of sectors and disciplines. We explore what they do, why they do it, how they got to where they are now, and their future ambitions. Each guest is registered with the Society of the Environment as a Chartered Environmentalist, Registered Environmental Practitioner, or Registered Environmental Technician via one of our professional body partners, also known as our licensed members. As such, they have been externally verified to confirm that they are committed to good practice in their environmental work. To learn more about the Society for the Environment, our environmental registrations and our licensed members, please visit socenv.org.uk. That's S-O-C-E-N-V.org.uk. Now, for this month's episode, I am very pleased to introduce Chartered Environmentalist, Kath Norgrove. Thank you very much for joining us, Kath. Hello. Hello. Whereabouts are you joining us from? I'm actually in South Shropshire. South Shropshire. Okay. Yeah. A few miles away from me. I'm just outside yes, of Leicestershire. <laughs> so you've avoided most of the recent storm issues? Yeah, thankfully, it seemed to miss us. Well, um, there's a few people a bit further north of us that got affected by and got snow, but we only had a few flakes of snow and minimal damage, thankfully. I can imagine. Yeah, well, that's thankfully indeed. Yes, yeah. Uh, we're actually recording this episode in December, hence why I'm talking about a storm. Um Hopefully, we haven't experienced another one by the time this goes out in January. Um, and having said it goes out in January, Happy New Year, everybody, which is a very strange thing to say in December, but I'm going to go with it. So I gave a very brief introduction to you there, just name only, really, and uh, the fact that you're a chartered environmentalist. A chartered environmentalist via uh, CIWEM? CIWEM, yeah. CIWEM, Chartered Institution of Environmental... Sorry. Management. Sorry, I got that wrong, didn't I? Yeah. Institution of Water and Environmental Management. Management. Excellent. Second time lucky. I'll get some complaints from Sarwen members now. That's not good, is it? But that's fine. I shall carry on. <laughs> um, so could you let us know a little bit about your current job? What, what do you do? What does it involve? Who do you work for? I work for Seven Trent Water. Um, I'm actually coming up to 20 years with the company. And at the moment, my current role is a network optimization specialist which I think is a great title. It's a very diverse role, and we support several outcome delivery incentives. These are the financial or reputational incentives for water companies to either outperform or avoid underperformance against each of their performance commitments. However, essentially, our role comes down to two main objectives. So firstly, we work with other teams to set the operating rules for the water distribution network. This is to ensure that the assets work together to maintain a resilient, reliable and stable water supply. Secondly, we investigate and assess network issues, promoting operational changes and investment to improve water supply for our customers. That's quite a span of responsibilities, I think. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I suppose only only very small amount of it is keeping taps on or taps running. Yeah, it's all about how the water gets to the taps, really, improving how it gets to the taps. Okay. 
So you said you've been there for a, a good few years now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what's your position now? Sorry, say that again. So it's a network optimization specialist. Okay, that's why I didn't get it the first time. Okay. And when, when you first started, what were you doing at that point? Um, I was what they called a distribution inspector. Okay. So I was actually out in the field. I'd go out to burst mains and the support gangs. And we took on some customer roles as well. So I would go out into the field to visit customers. Um, that progressed into me taking on some, what they called the re-tech, which is to do with reinstatements after burst as well. And then eventually I worked into the department I'm in now. In It was a previous form, but it was the same department. We've morphed over the years. Um, and as I say, we have a diverse role um, mm. looking after the operation of the water distribution system. Okay, interesting. And what kind of challenges challenges do you come across now? Um, well, there's quite a few with the job actually, because mm. it's um, it requires quite a bit of analytics and problem solving, and a depth and breadth of technical expertise. Because we're monitoring and evaluating and trying to get the absolute best from the whole system. Mm. Two things in particular, I suppose. Um, identifying the root cause of supply interruption events. This is when people go off supply. So if you have a burst main, for instance, what we will do afterwards is we work to identify why the main burst and what needs to be done to mitigate this. And then a second thing, which is also very important, is striking the careful balance between providing enough pressure but not overpressurizing the network. So we maintain an optimised and calm network, a bit like Goldilocks, not too low, not too high. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, it I'm sure there's all sorts of different um, technologies involved and, and that kind of thing, which I assume is, is, does that continue to develop in terms of? Yeah, it's, there's a lot more technologies coming on yeah. board. And I have worked with the innovation team in the past to look at different technologies and see what, where we can implement them in the field and how mm. that can help us. Okay. Blimey. Um, now, spinning that on its head slightly moving from challenges to um highlights i guess um do you have any do you do you work on particular projects that stand out or is it a lot of it day-to-day stuff or how does it work um well if you ask me what i did day to day i couldn't tell you because it varies from one day to the next from one week to the next but i can tell you about um i suppose what i'd call a recent highlight um, a new measure for AMP7 is called persistent low pressures and something off what has agreed with us. Mm. And as a team, we've been working hard on a new method to unearth breaches and these low pressure areas that are either not highlighted by traditional methods or they're picked up late by the traditional methods. And we do this so we can put in solutions early. And last year we outperformed and exceeded the regulatory target and the company actually received an ODI reward for the hard work and effort. So that's definitely a highlight that we managed to achieve that. In terms of outperforming the regulatory targets, is that um, relatively unusual across the sector? Or is it a bit of a... I think it depends on the target and the company. Mm. So this is this is new and it was good that we outperformed it. Yeah. And the company are doing very well on the environmental targets 
Now, this leads very nicely into my next question, because I think you just answered it, really. Uh, and that's about making a difference in your role. Um, given the highlight that you've just given, I imagine you do, you do feel like you make a difference in your role. Yeah, yeah. Because as a team, we undertake short to medium term proactive investigations. Hmm. And this is of the, the network deficiencies. And we're generating solutions to address the root causes that we identify. So we're really driving activity that contributes to an improvement in customer experience and contributes to the overall company performance. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I imagine that, I mean, in terms of the, the organisation itself, uh, being able to meet those kind of targets and so on is is, is good in so many different ways um, yeah. for a start, um, let alone how the, the customer receives the service and, and that kind of thing. Um, okay. So let's jump back um a few years i imagine um so your role has a number of environmental considerations and impacts and so on and clearly you're a trusted environmentalist so when did your when did you first develop an awareness for whether it's the environmental side of your your work or did the environmental interest come before work or well, you explore I've always had an interest in biology, natural history, conservation, and the environment. Um, I was an RSPCA junior member. I'd like to say oh. only last year, but it was a few years ago. <laughs> um, but the first time I was really struck about environmental issues, and this will be giving me a few things away here, was about 35 years ago, so I was extremely young. Um, I was reading a leaflet produced by Friends of the Earth, and it was all about global warming. And that's the first time I was conscious that was actually aware of environmental issues. Mm. And I know at the time it wasn't considered to be very cool to be into ecological concerns, but I was never one for convention. Yeah. Um, and then I went into an ed educational background that included biology and environmental science. And that gave me considerable understanding of environmental issues. And from that, um, as I grew older, I went travelling and I gained valuable insights into specific issues and anthropogenic impact facing other areas of the world. And these were hotspots like the Galapagos and the Amazon. In terms of uh, the uh, interest in, in ecological issues, I think it's fair to say that it's extremely cool to be interested in that now. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's only bias here, but extremely cool thing to be looking into. Um so it sounds like you did a fair bit of traveling interesting places to visit oh yeah what, 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 um, what, you mentioned a few then did you say galapagos islands i'm into the galapagos yeah oh. that was brilliant that was that was an amazing Excellent. experience but you should only go if you're an environmentalist a natural historian into conservation it's one of those places where um i think people need to really understand the impact they can have on the place but yeah. they also need tourists in order to support the research that they do there Mm. and they're trying to strike a balance and i think it's important to go appreciating what you're looking at but it was an amazing place it was it was just going around some of the islands we were in small groups we were lucky we had nine people to a guide mm -hmm. and they were they were guides that were trained by the charles darwin research center and they would take us through these little islands and you'd walk past animals and they just they wouldn't move they'd be Iguanas that you'd have to carefully step over because they weren't going to move out the path and mm. would walk around bird nests and you could see the birds rolling their eyes at you as if to say, 
More tourists. <laughs> it was bizarre. And even on one island, we went and there were some blue-footed boobies and they were doing a courtship ritual. Yeah. And they gradually got closer and closer to us because we were stood in a circle trying to keep away from them. And they just came and they were stood right by our feet. It was it was amazing. And it's, it was like they were performing to us as well. Yeah. Well, it's quite the haven for, for wildlife, that's for sure. Uh, and imagine for conservation generally. So, um, but yes, only go there if you want to learn a lot because it's uh, yeah. obviously an island in the middle of nowhere. So it's, uh, uh, it has an impact going there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's that's um, it's uh, you mentioned it was a few years ago with the uh, t- the climate change interest started. Yeah. Um, now that's obviously a massive topic at the moment, but it's uh, is it good to know it was such a known thing back then, and it's still it's fair to say it's still a problem, isn't it? It is. It it is a bit worrying, really, to think that all those years back people were talking about it, and yet it's only now really becoming mainstream. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it is now becoming mainstream because I think it's desperately important that people start to act to protect the environment and protect biodiversity. And is is that element of environmental protection why you chose to go down the career route that you did? I suppose to some degree, yes, because Seven Trent, for instance, have worked hard to transform some of the most heavily polluted rivers in Europe into wildlife corridors that can be enjoyed by customers and communities. And they are enhancing and improving habitats for wildlife and providing environmental, social and economic benefits. So it does seem natural to work for a company that works to protect nature. Mm. And I, I don't know if you're aware, actually, that uh, Seven Trent are the official nature and carbon neutral supporter of the Commonwealth Games. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Of the Commonwealth Games, is in the the Commonwealth Games that's upcoming. Yeah, the ones in Birmingham. Birmingham, yes, yes. Oh, interesting! Wow, that's good. That's next year, is it? Yes, that is. Yeah, that's exciting. That's yeah. not too far away from my neck of the woods. That's interesting. I wonder if there's tickets still available. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Have they been sold yet? I don't know. I'll have to look into that. Note to self: look into Commonwealth Games tickets. Um. So that's one of the well, that's, sounds that's your route into what what you do now. Um, you obviously gain a lot of knowledge as you go along, and you became a chartered environmentalist. Yeah. Um, why did you do that, and what does it mean to you? Well, I think being an environmentalist, I'm already aware of the multitude of global environmental challenges, which society and I'm already doing things to make a difference but being recognized as a child environmentalist demonstrates that the passion is more than just a hobby Mm. and that you're leading the way on environmental issues it definitely provides credibility for those addressing climate and environmental challenges as Sorkin Chief Executive Dr Emma Wilcox recently mentioned we've reached an historic landmark moment and environmental professionals are needed more than ever for guidance, education, innovation and leadership. This is if the goals of COP26 and the new Environment Act are to be achieved. And I would agree with that. And I think that's why it's important to be a chart environmentalist. Yeah, to show that you've got those skills to lead the way Yeah, uh, and make, uh, make the right decisions for the environment. That's one of the key things that we um, focus on in the Society of the Environment is 
having those people who've got that proven knowledge and so on who can make the um the the evidence-based decisions to to that has the least amount of impact on the environment or the most amount of positive impact on the environment yeah um good well, that's good to know um what would you say to others who are thinking about a career in the environment i'd suggest they get involved with a group at grassroots level there are plenty of them out there trying to make a difference with their local communities for me i think the uk's climate heroes are regular people who are tackling climate change and environmental problems by just making greener choices every day but also join a professional organization like the society for the environment or cywim to work with professionals and build up your knowledge that's what we're here for in terms of the vast amounts of knowledge out there to to make the most of from professional bodies um Cywen being a, an excellent example of that um so we i would certainly strongly suggest going to um speak to whether you speak to their membership team or whether you look through the website for the incredible amount of resources that are available now just look at the things that they're doing um it's it's certainly a, a good place to explore the options if you're starting off in the career or if you want to learn across different sectors and, and that kind of thing um and even if you're a member of SIOM, for example go and have a look at the iom free website or the institute of structural engineers website and that kind of thing because there's lots of different cross-learning opportunities to have um and from a SOCM point of view um we're made up of those various different professional bodies and part of that is sharing that knowledge between professionals and how they can work more outside of their silos and that kind of thing but good tips good tips if i do say so myself um so now i know this probably leads on quite well to what we're going to talk about next which is outside of your work because from my research you're quite busy outside of your work with various different projects as well am i right in saying that you are working towards a is it a sustainable low carbon community Yes, that's correct. Um, I chair a local environmental community group. It's called Sustainable Bridge North. Um, and I'm also the Refill Bridge North local champion. But as the chair of the group, we've been coordinating the Prevent Pointless Plastic campaign since late 2018. Okay. And this is an effort to reduce unnecessary single-use plastic in Bridge North District. We've had lots of support from residents, businesses, churches, schools, and our local branch of the Wildlife Trust, just to mention a few. The campaigns featured on Midlands Today, BBC Radio Shropshire, and local national publications. Bridge North is now incredibly lucky to boast two refill shops. We have room for refill in the High Town and the community-owned Our Green Shop in Low Town. And Our Green Shop was a spin-off from the uh, Prevent Pointless Plastic campaign in that they were a little group that went off to develop this proposal for a shop and it's it's now open and doing really well. Excellent. Pleased to hear it's going really well. There's not many of those shops around, I think it's fair to say. Um, and admittedly, the you know, the amount of waste that goes into bins and so on that isn't required, it's basically packaging, I suppose. Um, yeah. There's huge amounts of it. Um, it's, it's good to hear that things are, are happening to kind of stop that um what's the obviously the shop's doing well but what's the uptake like generally it, uh is it increasing in terms of people's interest yeah the shops are um 
do actually report back on the Sustainable Bridge North meetings, and they are reporting an increased interest, um, which is great. And we're promoting that. We had a, a campaign over the summer actually to try and promote more refill. Hmm. And um, what we wanted to do was get people to make one change to refill or reuse. Um, we felt that there was a large step back caused by the pandemic. There was more single use. Yeah. And we wanted to encourage people to go and say, just start filling up pasta in their jar or make sure they were taking their bag or, or use a reusable bottle or use a coffee cup. And we ran a campaign with the two refill shops to do this. And it included a free webinar, a family eco trail and a video that was produced. Wow. And we felt this was really successful because based on the pledges received, we saved the equivalent of, we worked out about 18,720 plastic bottles per annum. So 18,000 a year? Yeah. This wow. Based on the pledges we had, this is what we think we saved the equivalent of. So just to put that into some sort of context, um, we've got a local heritage railway called the Seven Valley Railway. Hmm. Laid end to end, assuming these are 500 mil bottles, this is about 374 kilometers, so that's the equivalent of over 23 times the length of this railway. I like it when these kind of quantities are put into uh, interesting measurement options. It's normally the um, how many, um, how many Olympic sized swimming pools you can fill up and that kind of thing. So, who is interesting? Well, how many double decker buses in terms of um. The local area, a lot of people know about the Seven Valley Railway, so it's a good way to, to give them somewhere to calculate it from. Oh, absolutely. And hopefully the majority of those pledges can uh, happen. Um, yeah. So that's a huge amount of waste um, stopped, which is which is brilliant. Um, we also had support from some of the schools, and they made mm. pledges. Um, one of the things that they did was pledge to have plastic-free lunches. So assuming they did that for a year, we equated that to about 10,000 plastic-free lunches. Wow. I mean, that's a that's a huge amount of, well, that's a huge difference to make, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and if, you, if you're able to calculate those kind of results, then it's, um, it's a good job well done, I imagine. What, what's the what's the end goal? Is there, is there an end goal? Is there always opportunity for improvement? I think it's, there's always opportunity because little changes in consumer behaviours give quicker results than waiting for systemic change. Mm. And it also highlights the public mood. If the government say that this is what the public wants, then that should help push the governmental agenda. Yeah. When I started the group, it was very small. Um, but now the group have expanded. And although we need even more active members because it's been so successful, we do have a large following there. So we have a lot of people on Facebook and uh, Instagram, as well as people who turn up to meetings and attend our events. Good. What's the um, opportunity like for spreading the idea beyond um, the local area? Well, um, I'm actually on the steering group of a county-wide coalition called Shropshire Against Pointless Plastic, SAP. Hmm. Um, and this has got uh, lots of groups from across Shropshire and they're all at different stages in their plastic campaigns. But we come together roughly on a quarterly basis 
and exchange ideas and talk about what we've done and what's been successful and what's not been what's successful. And if someone's trying to do something in their area and another area has done it, then we exchange ideas and say, well, if you did it like this, this worked for us. And but perhaps don't do that because that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So that's a way of spreading it out further. But uh, also, we're doing things like I mentioned the webinar in the summer. We've actually got one planned for February. And we've got one speaker confirmed who can talk about solutions for marine plastics and new technologies being developed to reduce them. And we're just in the process of confirming some other speakers. So we're looking forward to that going ahead. And then we're also in discussions about potentially holding a green fair in the summer, assuming that pandemics and other situations allow. Yeah, yeah, assuming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but potentially there's that which we hope we could do this summer. Excellent. Well, there's a huge amount of work there. So let's let's, let's do a bit of a plug. Um, if people wanted to find out more, where would they go? Well, they can find us on Facebook, Sustainable Bridge North, or Instagram. If you look for Sustainable Bridge North. Sustainable Bridge North on the Instagram. Okay, I'm going to yeah. do that. I'll definitely do that. Um, or also, I- if you go through um, Surfers Against Sewage, mm. Um, they actually uh, credited us as a plastic-free community in 2020 in recognition of the work we carried out. So there's some stuff about us on their site and also because we've got a refill scheme, there's some more information on the refill site as well. Really? Excellent. Now that is um, something that's even closer to my heart, being a surfer. So it's it's, uh, good to to see that I'll, I'll look out for that as well instagram and surface against sewage i'll um i'll have a look um well if you think about it because we're on the river seven the seven mm. eventually goes into the sea doesn't it so, so that chain starts when it goes into the river absolutely yeah yeah it's all i mean it's all interconnected isn't it um and given the issues around um ocean waste and, and that kind of thing and the add-on effects that that has um, yeah. making changes up river can only be a good thing um it stops me getting hit in the face by plastic bottles for a start which is always nice it has happened um including multiple jellyfish but they're okay um good so i mean in terms of the the amount of environmental work going on there there's there's a huge amount of skills involved in that given the amount of organizations you brought together and different communities and that kind of thing um it certainly shows the the breadth of the um skills required to make that kind of thing happen i can see a um a, a, a case study coming on for our new knowledge hub that we're going to be launching very soon oh. if we uh if we haven't uh, launched it already by the time this goes out um but i'll be in touch about that um excellent <laughs> <laughs> so you're uh, chair of the group is that right that's right yeah okay so but i mean chairs do lots of other things as well so what what um what roles did you take within the group and how it's developed and, and that kind of thing? Uh, I've done all sorts. I did start off as the publicity officer um, and then that developed into social media publicity. I've done PR to magazines and newspapers. I've given interviews to the local radio station, produced posters, I've monitored emails and messages. In fact, I'm, I'm sort of the email person as well. Um, I've facilitated public meetings. I've chaired the local group. Um, I'm a SAP rep. Remember I said earlier about the Shropshire Against Pointless Plastic? Well, I'm 
my rep for that. And I liaise with refill and surfers against sewage. So it's and pretty busy. And now you've been on Envcast podcast. Yeah. You've covered all bases. Brilliant. I have really, haven't I? <laughs> I would say being a small group can be a lot of work for the volunteers, especially around Plastic Free Feb and Plastic Free July, although we, we work year-round to raise awareness. Um, and the group doesn't just concentrate on plastic. We're often asked for help supporting other environmentally-related initiatives. Mm. So it's things like uh, supporting the Town Plan Sustainability Group. We provided an advisory panel for the Town Council to reduce their carbon footprint. And Sustainable Bridge North were founder members of something called the Green Shopshire Exchange. And this is a network of local groups in Shropshire and Telford and Reekin that promote communication and education about climate change and sustainable living. Yeah, yeah, um, it's quite the reach. Um, so that utilizes a lot of your uh, environmental knowledge, I imagine, that spans various different opportunities for for the environment i suppose yeah yeah blimey and what what kind of challenges do you come across within this part of what you do outside of seven trent i think it's it's more about when we have a campaign there's a lot of work to do on that specific campaign and it, because it's volunteers relying on people to to come along we do get a lot of help hmm. um but it's amazing how much work is involved and other people have picked up work and perhaps didn't realise at the time how much work goes behind it. So we're getting more and more people on board now, which is helping to spread the workload. And um, I think with the webinar, we've got a few of us trying to sort that out. And then with the Green Fair, there's a small subgroup that are meeting that they're going to organise that if we can do it. Yeah. We're trying to get other groups on board as well. So hopefully we'll have support from several local groups that, Things like the Wildlife Trust, um, the Master Composters, there's another group there. We've got litter pickers that support us. So hopefully that will help make things a lot easier to do. Did you just say Master Composters? Yeah, there is a group called Master Composters that wow. turn up next to us on a stall. So we went to a stall in um, May and June. There were some mini events that were held um, in support of the Wildlife Trust. And these Master Composters had a stall next to us. Okay. I wonder what they think of my compost. Interesting. Mm. But it's all about improving your soil structure. Yes. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite handy to have little groups like that to come mm. along and support these events. Fantastic. And in, in terms of spreading the, the workload, are you always looking for interested people to help out? Oh yeah, definitely. Anyone who can help. I mean, even if it's, if it's just trying to promote things for us, it just helps yeah. that people can spread the word, but yeah, any help we can get. Every Facebook post share helps. Yeah. Every post on LinkedIn, every like on the Instagram page and that kind of thing, it all, all spreads yeah. the word, doesn't it? It does. Excellent. There you go. you got two plugs out of me. Crikey. That's, <laughs> that's not bad going, is it? That's good going. <laughs> so that's, I mean, we've covered a lot there. We have covered a lot. Um, so what is next for you um well i do have a little pet project as well that i'm working on at home another project yeah it's Excellent. what we're, we're doing it's it's something i've been interested in for a long time but it was only really once we got the lockdown that we started looking into it more so and we're working to turn our garden into what we call a food forest or an edible forest garden 
Have you come across that concept? Um, not with that description, I don't think, but I think I get the idea. Well, in essence, it's a plant-based food production and agroforestry system that attempts to mimic the ecosystems and patterns found in nature. So a forest garden, when it's functioning fully, is a three-dimensional, multi-storey perennial polyculture, and it's based on the woodland ecosystem. So you've got life extending in all directions. It's up, down, out, and you incorporate fruit trees, shrubs, herbs, vines, perennial vegetables, and these all have yields directly useful to humans. Um, And then you can make use of companion planting, so these can be intermixed and you have a succession of layers. So you create your own mini holistic ecosystem of diverse edible plants. At least that's the theory. (laughs) Wow. So are you at the very early stage? Is this planning stages currently? Well, we've started. Yeah, it's it's an ongoing project, so it's going to take some time to get established. Um, It's not something you can necessarily do overnight, but we've made made a start on it. Um, We're trying to encourage wildlife as well as planting so we have we have actually got annual vegetables as well that we grow but we're looking at perennials and how we incorporate that into um a wildflower garden so we've got a wildflower area that we hmm. want to get growing and we've got trees a lot of them are an old root stocks and there's nothing growing on them so we're hoping to see if we can get fruit growing on them yeah and it's it's sort of making use of all the space and we're really lucky because we've got um a terrace garden so we've got a 3d space as well so we've to want to see how we can work with that and yeah. work with nature. And and the idea is um, it ca- increases the carbon capture capability of the garden and it protects the soil and nurtures wildlife. Mm. So um, once established, the idea is it can produce food without annual tilling, pesticides, fertilisers, or the high input chemicals and energy. And we, we're staying away from chemicals anyway. We've gone down the organic line. Yep. Um, but it's it's to try and make it more productive. Wow. See if you can produce more in a small space than you perhaps could over a larger garden. Well, in terms of, well, there's, there's so many different benefits to that, obviously, but going back to what you were doing with the local area and the community project, in terms of reducing you know, plastic waste and things like that, being able to pull your vegetables out of the, uh, the garden out the back has got to be a good way of doing that. Oh, it has. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, um, in the summer, um, and the, I've got a little patio apple tree. Uh, I wanted an apple for lunch, so I just reached behind me and pulled an apple off the tree, and that's how far the, the mild was. It was like one arm reach away. I tell you what, some people see some negatives towards it, these uh, environmental um, opportunities, but when it comes to, you know, you want an apple and you just pull it off the tree behind you, I mean, that's that's got to be, uh, that's the way to live, isn't it? It is. <laughs> and I've got a little cherry tree as well um and we don't get many cherries off it but it's nice when you you want a few and just go and pick them off the tree yeah if only we had the climate for you know picking lemons and things like that as well but we'll we'll leave that to (laughs) mediterranean temperatures shall we and things like that um well that's certainly i mean we've talked a lot of a lot of things already as i've already said but the, the the level of um uh different areas of environmental work that we've covered is it's pretty impressive well, thank <laughs> you very much <laughs> it certainly is we've talked about a lot of different things um 
and and I'm going to be researching a lot of things, I think, as well. Um, we're looking at doing things to our garden, for example. So we'll see what we can do with that. And part of the reason we're doing it is to be more, uh, to make it more environmentally friendly and um, to encourage wildlife and things like that, because gardens aren't always great for that, are they? So well, Even if you have limited space, the principles of forest garden can be replicated. I mean, yeah. even if you have a few tubs and things like that, or you plant a, a miniature apple or pear tree perhaps and uh, the theory is on the shady side you plant shade tolerant berries and currants on the sunny side you try some sun loving bushes and then at the base of these you plant some perennial annual vegetables and herbs and then maybe add in a climber or a few root crops things like that strawberries are very good because they provide ground cover but you can also get fruit off them absolutely wildlife as well or you've got peas and beans that you can grow up trees which we've done we've actually Planted peas and beans at the base of trees and let them grow up and grew them up trees. I yeah. haven't thought about that. That's not a bad idea, is it? Well, it saves you having to find sticks, doesn't it, to grow them up if you've got a handy tree somewhere. This is very true. Maybe I'll do that. I'll have to move move the ants out that grow at the bottom of my tree. But other than that, but I'm sure they'll be fine as well. Okay. Well, they might help. They might, they might fill the soil for you. This is true. It might be very fertile soil now. It's good. Um, okay, good. Well. We have, like I say, we've covered a lot of different topics, and um, we, but we have one question that we always ask all of our guests on Envcast, um, and that is, if you're able to influence world leaders, now this is very apt, given that COP26 was last month, but if you were able to influence world leaders for a day, what would be the first thing you'd do or the one thing you'd do if you had the opportunity? Well, I was actually going to mention COP26 because, ah. in my opinion, it produced very small steps of progress not the giant leaps that perhaps we were hoping for and there's still quite a bit of uncertainty about the implementation of these promises as i say the pledges are not legally blinding mm. so i think we need to see them action with policies and incentives I mean, delivery is key now uh, the government's doing what they've pledged to do but in addition to that what i'd ask for world leaders to do is help people make small step changes and bring the public along with them so we could do with some national level action incentives to make eco choices obvious and more cost effective. And the one standout example is making rail travel cheaper than internal flights. Absolutely. You're not going to change people's way of traveling if it costs three times or four times as much to travel by train as it does by flying. I, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very difficult to comment on that because it seems so obvious. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's, it's very, very um, tricky in a very simplistic manner. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where to go, but yeah, it's, um, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, and that kind of thing wasn't really discussed at COP26 generally. Um, no. Those kind of things could be on the table. And I think the, um, yeah, mate, <laughs> Providing the tools for the public to get involved and make a difference is is, is hugely important. Um, now, doing that alongside environmental professionals doing a lot of complicated work is is that that joined up um, approach could be very effective. I'd have thought. Um, good. Well, so we're going to stop the podcast there. I think. Um, but thank you very much for your time. It's been a You're pleasure welcome. talking to you. Thank and you. I, I'm looking forward to some updates. I must admit, 
Um, maybe we'll have to do another MCAST in 12 months' time. Who knows? But having said that, we've got seven and a half thousand chartered environmentalists who want to, might want to have a go as well. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, but thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Speak to you again soon. Bye then. If you are curious to hear more about the Chartered Environmentalist, Registered Environmental Practitioner and Registered Environmental Technician Registers, please take a look at our How to Become and Why Become recorded webinars on our website, socm.org.uk, or visit our YouTube channel. To keep up with all of the Society's latest news, you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at SOCEMV underscore HQ and on LinkedIn as well. And you just search for Society for the Environment and it's the one with SOCEMV in the brackets at the end. We release a new episode on the first Wednesday of each month. So if you're interested in our future podcast, please subscribe to hear more from us. You can subscribe and review through a variety of platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify and CastBox. Thank you very much for listening or watching on YouTube. We look forward to the next episode next month.